Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron, and I'm here with my co-host, Kate Lurie, and we're also here with our guest today, Destin Garrick. On this episode, Destin will be telling us his transformative story, and in our next episode, he'll be back to deconstruct what he shared with us today. So let me tell you a bit more about Destin Garrick. He's a globally recognized leading voice in masculinity, sexuality, and personal empowerment. A certified sexologist through the American College of Sexologists International, he's the founder and CEO of the Evolved Masculine, a pioneering coaching and training company for men, and the author of the best-selling book, The Evolved Masculine, Be the Man the World Needs and the One She Craves. Destin is also an international speaker and host of the podcast, The Evolved Masculine, Redefining Sex, power, and success. His innovative lens is the result of more than 20 years of academic rigor and direct study, including seven formative years traveling the world, living, and teaching as his provocative alter ego, the erotic rock star. Destin has taken the most potent aspects of his bold life experimentation and integrated it into his iconic body of work, directly supporting thousands of men to have better sex, deeper connections to their masculine power, women, and themselves. Now, before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not a replacement for therapy or therapy. Please know this episode has themes of sexual and emotional abuse. So if you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please go get support. Call a friend, a therapist, or an emotional support hotline like 800-273-TALK, which is 8255. All righty. So Destin, I got to tell you, over the course of being a therapist, I've had this recurrent thought over and over again. I thought if only everyone could hear the life stories that I hear for a living, that we would have a world that was so much more shame-free, so much more conscious, compassionate, etc. And that's the main reason that Sunny and I decided to do this podcast. You know, um, you know, people have so much internalized shame. I, you know, I think we all know that. But speaking our truth breaks down that shame. And so in the last three bios, we've heard three women speak about their, you know, incredibly vulnerable past. And so, Dustin, you coming on now is perfect timing, considering that yours is a story of breaking down concepts of masculinity, exploring gender, and reclaiming male energy in a way that's been healing for you, but also inspiring for so many people. So before we get started with your story, is there anything you want our listeners to know? Yeah, I've actually been very nervous leading up to this, much more so than I expected as somebody who talks about these things all the time. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I'm just prepared to open deeply. Great. Thank you. All righty. Well, if you're ready, please tell us your story. All right. So uh, (laughs) I grew up in a, I don't know, I had a volatile childhood. My parents, like the vast majority of my memories 
involved yelling and screaming in my household or being sent to my room crying from being yelled at, screamed at, or just hit. <laughs> that it to me, it was normal. Though at some point, I do remember things like seeing these PSAs on TV for like child abuse hotlines and at one point being, you know, starting to be like, is that what's going on here? But no, no, you know, this is, this is just how it is. And like, they're just being parents. And at one point threatening my parents that I was going to call this number and them just being like, go ahead. You know, just calling my bluff, essentially. And I'm, like, like reaching towards the phone and then having all these second thoughts and questioning myself and, and then just feeling, I don't know, guilty and ashamed and then not, not doing anything. And it took me years to really start to unpack all of the, the pain that existed in our households. Just I never knew what was going to set my parents off. It just seemed like I was always getting punished and I never knew what I did. I never knew what I, I did wrong. And a lot of beautiful things came from it, but I suppose that comes later. I just became hyper vigilant. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Then in middle school, my dad started to have his midlife crisis. He had no real friends and he started to really dump on myself and my sister, unloading on us his emotional baggage sharing about how he wanted to leave my mom um, very early on in their marriage and that she lied to him and stopped taking the birth control pill and got pregnant with my sister as a means of quote-unquote trapping him and keeping him from leaving. Uh, yeah, 14 years old here in this story. And then <laughs> and it worked and he stayed. And then just when he was getting ready to like leave again, rinse and repeat, and I, I was born. Wow. Yeah, so it, this is this is my puberty experience, finding out, yeah, and not only was I not wanted by him, I was a tool of manipulation. Goodness. And, and so I exist. Uh, throughout my childhood, my parents had no affection between the two of them. My mom slept on the couch in the living room. And my dad slept in the bedroom. Clearly, like there's a sub, there's a power thing there, a certain subordinate thing. But my mom being the one to sleep on, on the couch in the living room, and I just, I don't know, you know, I was afraid of my dad through most of my childhood. Though in retrospect, I came to recognize that my mom actually probably hit me more than my dad. It was just I spent a lot more time with my mom, so it was a smaller percentage of the time, whereas most of my memories of my dad seemed to involve me being hit or screamed at. So uh, when I was just about 15, um, my parents sat me and my sister down and said that they were separating. And my first reaction was, what took so fucking long? (laughs) I bet. And I was thrilled. So my dad moved out. And honestly, over the next few years, I barely saw him. I barely spoke to him. And that was my choice. I had no interest in being near him. But eventually, I started to recognize that he wasn't the same man. That getting out of that, the house where he was so unhappy, something in him started to change. But still, it took me another decade before I really started to... I don't know, decide that I wanted to have a better relationship with him. But we're not there yet. (laughs) (laughs) Also, at around that same time, 14, 15 years old, I was on the school wrestling team. I was actually the 
the runt of the litter, so to speak. I was, I think, the third smallest guy on the team. Like, uh, and during practice one day, I uh, we were doing drills, and I ended up being paired with one of our stars. And yeah, I got slammed down in a way that's normal in that world, but something happened. In a room of 85 middle school wrestlers, the coach ran from the, across the room because he heard something. Oh, that wow. something was, yeah, that something was my back. And it forever changed my life. I, uh, the doctor that I ended up going to basically was an idiot. <laughs> and he, he told me, sorry, kid, you're just going to have to learn to live with it. So at 15 years old, I took on the message that I'm now broken. And I, belie- I believed it for the next 12 years. And my body just got in worse and worse and worse shape. Um, what started in my mid-back spread to my low back, to my upper back, to my neck, to my hips, to my knees. And it got to 24-7 chronic pain. I could not remember what it was like to not hurt anymore. All of these things led me to, to further disengage from my body, to further retreat up into my head. And, of course, not recognizing that this is what was going on at the time. Okay, move forward, we'll say two years, and in high school, long story short, my I started to date this woman, and less than two weeks in, she broke up with me, and I'm like, what, what happened? <laughs> and uh, she ended up saying, meet me after school, and we sat down in an, an empty corridor by the lockers, and I ended up being the first person that she told about being raped by her boyfriend earlier that summer um, on her 15th birthday. I was 16 and not exactly emotionally equipped to handle this. It had a huge impact on me. I was filled with rage. Um, She wouldn't tell me who this person was. Supposedly, they were from a different school. In retrospect, who knows if that was even true. And I I mean, all I wanted to do was throw this boy, the violent fantasies I had were throwing him against a wall and literally hammering nails through his testicles. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Well, you've always been so empathetic. You just took on all her pain. Oh, oh, that was that was the start of what would become. I don't know. It's like an open Pandora's box. We end up getting back together again a year later. And spending about three years together and the impact of that rape was ever present you know it it, we yes i'm very empathetic um most likely this childhood family experiences played a big role but i no matter how close we got it just always seemed like there was something in in the way and then on a physical level i can't tell you the number of times that like i'd sit on the bathroom tile floor holding her hand where she squeezed it tightly screaming from constant utis and bladder infections oh bless her heart that's horrible yeah and so again lots of i mean clearly this is majorly impactful on her and i can't share her story i can really only share mine and it took me a long time to even kind of claim ownership to my story around this. But this was life, like, it formed the direction of my life. Yeah, I made a decision at, at one point in, in frustration, exasperation, that I'm going to do whatever I could with my life to create a world where things like this didn't happen anymore. And so it set me <laughs> forward. By the time I went to uh, college, I went to New York University for undergrad. And 
like I said, it's like I opened Pandora's box. I some, somehow became this magnet for women to share their stories to. And if I wasn't the first person they told, I was often the first man that they told. And I heard countless stories, countless stories. And combined, it really was bringing me to this place where I started to distrust other men, uh, distrust my own masculinity, distrust men's sexuality, most of all. And so I, I increasingly disconnected from these parts of myself, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, uh, at this point where I should be like sinking into these parts of myself. Instead, I was cutting away from them. And I was retreating into my feminine because it seemed safer. At least then I wouldn't become that same kind of a monster. I wouldn't hurt anybody like that. And the women that I was being drawn to and attracted to, not just romantically, but everybody in my life, were women who had been traumatized, uh, were wounded in their relationship to men and the masculine. And they encouraged me going more into my feminine. So now you're cut off from your body and from your masculinity. Absolutely. And I think I started to get really confused about my sexuality, questioning, well, maybe everybody else knows something that I don't. This got further complicated because after Anjali, the the high school sweetheart, and I broke up, I had another major <laughs> formative incident. I had an old family friend of my parents who I kind of grew up with. I mean, it was more like he came in and out throughout, like from when I was a young child. Um, and yeah, I thought of as like an uncle of sorts. And he started reaching out to me and asked me if I wanted to go skydiving with him out in Connecticut, where he lived. And I'm like, uh, sure, I'm a novelty junkie. I like new things. That sounds awesome. And uh, I met him out there. We hadn't seen him in more than five years, probably closer to, yeah, anyway. And I, the first time we went, it was great. It was a lot of fun. It was good to reconnect. I, again, I, I was still fairly new to New York City, so I didn't really have very many friends. I was nurturing a broken heart, feeling very alone. And here was, you know, somebody who I had the old family history with to connect with. And then I went home and then the Second time I went out, though, something was a bit different. The night before we went uh, skydiving, he's basically feeding me one beer after the next and smoking a joint. And I didn't really do these things. So I got really blitzed very quickly. And next thing I know, his hands were all over me. And I was not prepared. <laughs> he was a larger man than myself. I couldn't, I mean, I was barely standing straight. Dessen is about to discuss the internal conflict that occurred as he experienced sexual trauma concurrent with positive physical sensations. This is another example of arousal non-concordance. The first example was in episode five, Siri Dahl's biography. In the case of sexual trauma, when the mental-emotional experience doesn't match the physical experience, the sexual trauma survivor often assumes that they must have wanted the abuse since their body responded. This is simply untrue. For more on arousal nonconcordance, please watch Emily Nagowski's TED Talk, The Truth About Unwanted Arousal.
next thing I know, I'm in this bed with him. And again, I'm just really confused because I, because it kind of feels good. And at the same time, it's, I, I'm not wanting it. You know, it's, it's not like it's coming from my own curiosity or my own desire. It's more like, oh, I guess this is what's happening now. Uh, something that I know too many women can relate to. And again, further confusing because it's like, whoa, this kind of feels good. And then ultimately, I even uh, orgasm, release, ejaculate through the experience and that feeling good and just leaving me feeling really fucked in my head because I'm like, what was this? I left just not really sure what it meant, why it happened, how it happened, and what do I do with this now? Sometime later, this boy at school started to uh, hit on me essentially and I was like well I've maybe I should go with this because then at least I'm choosing it and he was very sweet he was very he like he brought me cupcakes at my work and like he was really he was really trying to woo me and I'm like again it didn't necessarily feel it didn't feel the same way as I felt towards the women that I'd been sex that sexually connected with but he was nice and it seemed like an opportunity to kind of like reclaim some power around the situation and so i ended up hooking up with him and it was it it was good you know again it it didn't feel like it's where the core of my attraction was but i was open enough and it wasn't a bad experience the previous experience kind of was a bad experience so it started to further open up this many years really of just kind of continuing to explore and not really understanding how to define my sexuality and people want you know in my life wanting to like say okay so you're bi so you're bi and i'm like maybe but i don't know that label doesn't really feel like it quite fits either so you're straight i don't know i mean that doesn't <laughs> really feel like it fits either and and then other people who are who are trying to convince me that you're just closeted and you're really gay and you just gotta you just gotta admit it to yourself. And I'm like, I think I like pussy too much. <laughs> <laughs> so it it was a lot of confusion for many years. And again, in in re retrospect, I think it really was rooted much more in a deep wounding around men and masculinity more than about my like core sexuality and desires so moving forward some <laughs> i at nyu where when school i ended up becoming a, a sexual health advocate on campus this is my first entryway into working with other people around this area i think i was drawn to it because sex had was over in various forms was already having such a major impact on my life it was both where i experienced the first feelings of like i don't know solace and acceptance and peace and belonging coming out of an extremely volatile uh family unit and then at the same time it also showed me very early on how it can be the source of such pain and trauma and violence so uh, i started i went through a, a semester-long training and started uh, teaching workshops for other students on campus and nyu offered a master's program in human sexuality so by the time i was a junior i kind of fought my way into the grad classes and took a whole bunch of them <laughs> before i graduated and then i moved out to california because san francisco state university started their own human sexuality master's degree when i first got out there i 
went through the San Francisco Sex Information FISIS, their 85-hour training to be a peer, uh, certified sex educator. And this dates me a bit because after going through that, you work their f- phone lines, like a literal landline corded, <laughs> sitting in this little room with one or two other people um, with various books around different things around sex and answering people's anonymous questions that came in. Well, I, I really enjoyed it, but between calls, I'd look through the different books. And one of the books was The Joy of Uncircumcising. And I was like, what is this? So I born and raised Jewish, more or less, and didn't really ever question the fact that I had a bris at eight, eight days old, and this is just part of life. But I am also a very curious person. <laughs> and so I started reading through it, and I ended up taking it home with me. It grabbed me that much. And the first half of the book was on the history of circumcision, which all I can say is the more you know, the worse it is. And the, the second half of the book was on what the title refers to as uh, uncircumcising or more commonly referred to as foreskin restoration. Now, this really grabbed my curiosity because I'm like, no. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but but I'm an experimenter and, you know, my uh, an experiment with my dick? Sure, sign me up. So I f- kind of followed one of the things in the book and I just p- basically pulled what I could of the shaft tissue forward, pushing the head back in towards the body and took like a Band-Aid and taped it over. Wow. And and committed to to just like doing that for 24 hours a day for seven days and see what happens. Highly skeptical. Fascinating. Yeah. I'm I'm fascinated. It it was very uncomfortable. But, (laughs) you know, I'm like, well, we'll see. After just... Seven days, when I took it off, I noticed that the skin was a little pinker in color, it felt softer and more sensitive to the touch, and that there was moisture to it. You know, kind of like mucous membrane tissue is supposed to be. Okay, wow. This was just seven days. And I'm like, whoa, there there might be something to this. (laughs) And if there's something to this, then maybe there's something to all this things that I was just reading about the harms of circumcision itself. So this took me down a rabbit hole for the next several years. I ended up reading at least two dozen books on the subject. I ended up shifting my my uh, master's thesis to be focused on male circumcision and its effects on male and female sexuality. And I had a pretty major break- breakdown around it. I, w- I went into some pretty severe grief, feeling violated, feeling that that this, I had a scalpel taken to my genitals when I was a baby and could not consent, did not understand what was going on. And there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah, well, you know, and and a baby has no coping skills and a baby just came from this field of love inside the womb where all it knows is love and being held. Being a parent now, I cannot comprehend it. I really can't. And I know that there are those listening who A, have been circumcised themselves or have have circumcised their their child and I uh, I'm I generally like to have a lot of compassion these days and also say that don't just listen to what I have to say like like dive in there's so much out there at this point and I really believe that as you really look at the data 
there it's indefensible at this point it's indefensible it really is something we need to leave in the annals of history and especially during this time when we're talking about when we're really coming to face to face with notions of consent and how widespread trauma is and how you know if we want this to change maybe we need to be addressing this in all areas of life including the fact that still a majority of boys enter this world or majority in the United States. Worldwide, not the case. But in the United States, are into this world getting a severe trauma to their genitals. And it leaves me wondering, how can there not be a connection here? Right. I think a lot of times people think that they, they're only traumatized if they remember the trauma, and it's just completely not true. It's the opposite. You're, when you don't remember the trauma, the damage is greater because you, mm-hmm. you don't understand where your behaviors are coming from. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, there's a lot of this that that is hard to fully know for certain what certain aspects of the impact are. I can speak for myself. It was devastating for me. I hit a point where when, like, my girlfriend would, like, start to pull down my pants to get all sexy with me, and I would look down at my penis and just lose like lose my erection lose interest just get sad i i just like i can't i'm i i just can't and so i moved through that it was grief it was anger and it it took some years it took some years of and also a a shift in my focus really I think it's one of the things that that ended up bearing the direction of my career because it's like, okay, I could spend all this time focusing on what's been taken from me, what's been lost, or I can start bringing more of my attention into what's possible. What can I experience? Yeah, that's a huge shift. Yeah, and and I've come to experience a lot that's possible <laughs> that, <laughs> that most men circumcised or not circumcised still haven't touched. But still, you know, having a a small, you know, I have, my son is six months old and we, of course, left him intact and not circumcise him. And, uh, you know, that is part of me that's envious. It's it's not an experience I can ever have. Uh, One one of the books that I read and still have um, on the circumcision issue is called Sex as Nature Intended. And yeah, I won't ever know sex as nature intended. Wow. Wow. Well, you've taken back your sexuality in a lot of ways. A lot of ways. Going, which you've done a little <laughs> bit of fore, foreshadowing regarding that, but that is a heartbreak. It's it, tragic. It's just something I ultimately had to accept. So, so then things started to open. I, well, first I guess they got worse. I I got increasingly active on campus at grad school. Um, first with my circumcision-related activism, and then connecting with other activists on campus. So then then it's 2003, the Iraq War started, I got involved in the anti-war efforts, and then just the whole global justice movement uh, at that time, and I uh, started getting involved in a lot of street activism and started coming face- face-to-face with police brutality, like, you know, from feet away, not just through the internet, which was barely a thing at the time. And I, I experienced a lot, you know, uh, tear gas, uh, rubber bullets, pepper spray happening all around me until in June 2004, it happened to me, where uh, I 
Got arrested. Long story short, I had both my rotator cuffs torn and my C56 uh, disc in my neck herniated by the San Francisco Sheriff's Department. This sent me into a downward spiral. I had a psychological emotional breakdown. I lost faith in humanity. I, I just felt like the world is going to hell in the handbasket and nobody cares. And nobody seems to care. And I started losing all my friends because I just, I couldn't really handle life anymore. If somebody said, wow, it's such a beautiful day today, I would need to point out why it wasn't. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I met this uh, Mexican anarchist chick at this uh, protest, the FDAA uh, protest in Miami uh, the year before, and she invited me down to uh, Mexico to, to travel with her. And I'm like, well, I've got nothing keeping me here. So I had, I threw a backpack on my back. I had like $200 to my name <laughs> and went down there with her. But two people on a Darwin spiral do not lift each other up. So, I mean, I had some great experiences. Her connections led to me by myself um, spending a week in a Zapatista village which the Zapatistas are basically the Mexican indigenous revolutionaries. I got interviewed by three black ski mask wearing, large gun toting men whose language I didn't really speak very well. It was a little intimidating. I wasn't quite sure I was going to get out alive, but I did. <laughs> At this point, your whole life has been pretty intense. So, yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing is that I, from those early experiences and through here, intense experiences is what my nervous system is expecting. It's normalized. And if it's not having them, something is wrong and I'll find a way to create them. So I get out of the, the Zapatista village, meet back up with her, and things quickly just blow apart. And I call up my, my friend in San Francisco, essentially crying, saying, I came down here hoping for something to get better, and it's worse than ever. I don't know what to do. Maybe I should just come home. And she's like, look, you plan to be out there for two months on my $200. I don't know how. <laughs> I did it. And... <laughs> Uh, you know what? When I was traveling, I stopped in Palenque in Southern Mexico in, and everything changed for me. It was really a magical place. Just to give you a sense of how I was at the time, as soon as she said a magical place, I rolled my eyes and I was just like fucking hippie. And, <laughs> <laughs> I have some hippie in me too, so I, I have hippie tolerance. Yeah, well, now I do. But <laughs> So I, I'm like, all right, well, I don't know what I'm doing, so why not? So I... I take a bus, I go to Palenque, and I'm walking around just lost, like, I don't know what she's talking about, fine. Long story short, I end up stumbling upon, uh, I think two days later, I stumble upon this backpacker's paradise, and I don't know how, but it was as if a switch flipped inside of me. It was as if every person I met, every conversation I had was designed for something to do to change, to awaken within me. And I really consider these next three weeks the the start of my spiritual awakening. I my the the cloud of darkness that I was living in <laughs> started to open up. The sun started to open. Every person I sp spoke to seemed to have a completely different worldview. And they seemed to believe that that, that there was a an evolution of consciousness occurring, that we were moving from a, a from 
a period of darkness into a a deeper understanding of one another, an interconnection between all of humanity, our understanding and connection to the earth itself and to a, a larger oneness consciousness, so to speak. And this hit me like a brick. Like <laughs> This is not at all the paradigm I was living under prior. <laughs> yeah, it's a completely different bubble. Completely. And I met this this Mexican couple who were leading these, these retreats rooted in a Toltec philosophy. And the Toltecs are like the ancestors to the Mayans and the Aztecs. And like, like what Carlos Castaneda wrote about. And they took me through this seven-day initiation that completely blew me open. I met my death, actually, right here in front of me on my desk. I'm picking up right now. Is this pumice stone that I carved into the shape of a skull uh, while sitting in the middle of a jungle with a, a single candle and carving the skull while contemplating my death for an hour? <laughs> and a whole series of experiences that just opened something in me and changed my my worldview. And I got introduced to uh, Vipassana meditation as a idea. And five months later, I went and did my first 10-day uh, meditation, during which I touched stillness and of my mind for the first time that I know of. And, and also started to have something crack around this constant pain that I was in in my body. Because during the sit, I, during the meditation, you know, 4am to 8pm every day of sitting in silence, I was in excruciating pain. The pain that I was always in was just like brought up tenfold. And I kind of broke silence during um, a permissible moment and asked the teacher about this. And he said, look, like, sooner or later, you're going to have to learn how to be with this pain. In the moment, I was just like, fuck you. You have no idea what I'm going through right now. But he was right. And I started learning how to just feel the pain and not resist against the pain. And then I started to get the sense that maybe there's something I can do about this. Twelve years later, I finally broke through that maybe I could actually do something about this. And now here I am at about to turn 43 and my body is in better shape and healthier than it was at 25. So Yeah, there's a lot of spirituality involved in in pain. I've I've gone on my own journey with it. That's fascinating. It was one of the things that sh that showed me early on that well we have so much more capacity to create change in our lives than what I grew up knowing it did like i grew up knowing like shit happens essentially and then you just deal with it and over time and as you get older you get hit with more shit and, <laughs> and you just learn to deal with it right <laughs> yes and so i i started getting these notions that more and more was possible so then burning man happens <laughs> <laughs> and i meet this woman i, I call her kirsten in, in my book and um she, I don't, I still don't understand why she was attracted to me because my sense of self at the time, I wouldn't, I would not have thought of myself as being attractive to a woman like her. And a lot of that has to do with my self-esteem at the time, etc. Uh, she was a circus girl, trapeze artist, stilt walker, uh, clown, etc. As well as a stripper and a total exhibitionist in every way. And... I, I mean, my jaw was just dropped around her. 
most of the time. One, the first day that we were connecting, we were moving around Burning Man. We ended up on some dance floor and she pulls these uh, acrylic crystal balls out of a, a sock and starts contact juggling, starts playing with them. And very quickly, a whole a crowd forms around us. And I stood there just watching her in awe and something just clicked in me because here is this, this woman, like she just took that light inside of her. And instead of, as I had always been, feel like I've got to like kind of tone it down, kind of keep it in check, you know, just, it's, you know, you don't want to, I don't know, be intrusive or what have you. And I watched her just like take that light and turn it up full blast and how everybody loved it. It was a gift to the people around her. And I just, I got this permission inside of me to turn, turn up my light and that, I had this exhibitionist in me and I just now had, now it was okay to let it out. And so we, we ended up being together for the next few years and we were massively exhibitionistic together. I didn't have too much of a direction of my own. I, I allowed myself to kind of be sucked into her world a lot. I played with uh, my own performance art with her. I started, I let her be, like dress me up as she wanted essentially and she actually first coined that phrase of erotic rock star and we were very much playing with it together it's like like being these kind of erotic rock stars we would we would show up in these different environments and kind of take over with our high energy sexually exhibitionistic being all over each other flaunting our sexuality and just being watched <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. It was a yeah. lot of fun. And we were also trauma bonded. We both came from volatile households. We, um, she, of course, had also experienced a lot of sexual trauma. And um, we didn't have healthy relationship mechanisms. And we fought. We, as I say, at all times, it seemed, we were either fighting or fucking. And they were both really loud. Yeah. I, I, you'd hate to be our neighbors. <laughs> right. So this, I really look at her as my other major love of my life. And the only reason why we didn't work was we just didn't have the tools. You know, the, the love was there. It was deep, but we were carrying major wounding and we took it out on each other constantly. So... In there, I found sexological bodywork. I went through the Institute for the Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. And ah, yes, I actually dropped out of the master's degree program six months before completing it. Uh, I, I, witnessed, I witnessed my neighbor getting gunned down in a drive-by shooting. And that was, that was the end of my already taxed nervous system, being like, I can't do this. Let me hit pause. I'll get back to it. And instead, I went to the Institute for the Advanced Study of Human Sexuality, went through their sexological bodyworker certification under Joseph Kramer. He and I uh, formed a good bond. I, he basically became my private mentor for the next year following. Set some real, I'm very grateful for that. He's an incredible man, set some really powerful foundations for me, also helped me set some really strong ethics around doing this work, which was great because next up, I found the Tantra community, which was wonderful in many fronts, but having a strong ethical foundation was not its strong suit. So I moved up the, I don't know, <laughs> the ladder of leadership very quickly in that world. I think 
partly because I had academic background, I had the sexological, sexological bodywork training background, and I was flaunting my erotic rock star full exhibitionist expression, which turned heads. So you pull I them. Bet. So you pulled them together, and I, you know, I, yeah, I got into a leadership role pretty quickly. But at the same time, like the people who, were, who were twenty years older than me and were the roots of of these communities, I was looking to for role models, and I was seeing a lot of messed up behavior. And I'm like, here we are, a community that's supposedly about sexual healing, and I see that healing occurring on one hand, but I'm also seeing a harm happening left and right at the same time. And I'm trying to figure out how to reconcile these things, what to do about this, as well as like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying to figure this out. Right, <laughs> right. And these are, these are the people who are most lauded in, the, in this community. So... But something felt icky <laughs> is the only way to, I know how to put it. Thankfully, I also had my whole burner community. So I just kept trying to, okay, let me not do what they're doing and like kind of be in my, get my needs met through my burner community. So in this like tantric community, I can be more in my, like to really be a DACA, to really be a, a true like sexual healer. It can't be about you at right. all. And so if it's blurred with you're finding your own like sexual fulfillment and working through your own shit in the same place that you're providing the healing, you're going to have some problems. Yeah, that's an important clarity you have there that a lot of folks do not have. Yeah, well, I was trying to figure it out. A lot of it was I'm seeing it around me and being like, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, I don't like this. <laughs> and again, I think that the early experiences that I had around sexual trauma also played a big role. And like, like, it was a foundational part as to why I was getting into all of this. So, so I was hypersensitive to things that weren't healing. Um, so I started to really discover my erotic power and what I was capable of, so to speak, where prior to that, I mean, I was felt the opposite. I felt low in the totem pole. Most women weren't interested in me sexually. They were interested in me at, like I was their I was their gay friend who wasn't actually gay. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> but then 2005, Neil Strauss's The Game came out. 2007... Porn tube sites really became a thing. So, and 2007 was the birth, what I consider the birth of the erotic rock star. So, just as my erotic rock star stuff was coming into being, these two things we'll call the pickup world and like the advent of free hardcore porn becoming ubiquitous were having a combined massive impact on male culture. I'm seeing this happening and I'm like, well, what is going on here? And what do I do about this? <laughs> and, and so I, I wanted to be, I wanted my erotic rock star to be kind of my artistic spiritual response to these industries and just kind of show that there, there could be a better way to, but I had to prove that there was a better way. And unfortunately though, I, I, I often think of the Nietzsche quote of, you know, if you stare into the abyss long enough, the abyss starts to stare back into you. You know, like I was looking at, at everything I didn't like about these, the impact of these industries, but I was giving them so much of attention. I think that they weren't just, it was having a negative impact on me as well. That makes sense. 
Well, it was so pervasive during that time. So freaking pervasive. And I'm, so I'm like, okay, so to get men to listen to what I have to say, and if I'm going to have an impact here, I have to, yeah, men have to listen to me. But I look around the Tantra world, and there are all these like kind of feminine men walking around in in sarongs all the time. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, this is, this is not being like this is not going to have men really listen to me the way that I want to listen to me if I'm going to have a real impact on, you know, getting things like sexual trauma to stop. Right. <laughs> yes. So that's why rocks, I like the rock star archetype. It gave me freedom to be wild. It gave me freedom to be weird. I was always weird. Here, rocks are supposed to be weird. They're not supposed to fit in. So, so it's an, it was a powerful archetype for me. And I tried to have an impact on the pickup world without being associated with the pickup world. And that was a difficult dance to do. So many men think they either are the douchebag that gets laid or they're the nice friend and they don't understand you can be a noble slut. <laughs> that, that was my aim. <laughs> and mostly, <laughs> mostly I was. I would say 90% of my seven-year erotic rock star journey, I'm, I, I feel very good about and I feel very proud of. I really wanted to be what you refer to as a noble slut. I wanted to, I, I wanted to be an antidote, really. And uh, for many women, I was. Then I had a 10-month three-way relationship with two incredible women uh, that uh, both ended the same weekend. And I never, it, it happened relatively quickly after Kirsten, the one who birthed the erotic rock star. Uh, I never really grieved her. So when the three-way relationship ended, I, it's like all of it was hitting me now. And I went into depression. I went into like, but I had all these inc all these incredible skill sets <laughs> when it came to women yeah. and sex. Now, but now instead of being like driven by my open heart and my compassion and my love and you know all those things, it was coming from a place of I have this deep dark hole inside of me that I'm going to try to fill by filling other holes, so to speak. And so that, I mean, it wasn't that long. It was probably a, f a few months, but I feel like that's where I was the most careless with my sex. You know, this is the period where I feel like I, I could run into these women who I fucked during this period and I wouldn't know. I wouldn't recognize them. I, I didn't care. And I, I have regret around that. So I met this woman McCoy Maria, who I who hit all of my major turn on buttons, all of my major turn on buttons, gorgeous, ran incredible amounts of sexual energy and beautiful sensuality, kind of like just has, was so good at kind of tapping into that divine feminine energy and just it's like I could watch these moments where it would just channel through her and I it would touch something in me that impacted me so deeply but it was also became the most toxic of my many toxic relationships arguably abusive whereas i could be emotionally violent um which i'm not proud of at all and took me many years and a shit ton of work to work through and i still have echoes that i work with she was physically violent and um she struck me i think four or five different occasions and during yeah during one of them, I broke up with her in like in the moment, like because I felt like in that moment she was doing everything she could to hurt me, and I was doing everything I could to not hurt her. And I'm like, this is dangerous. I mean, if if this ended up 
if the police got involved in this, who would be the one who would pay the price here? I'm pretty sure it's me. And everything that I'm building, I've been working so hard for and toward would be torn down in in an instant. So I told her, get out. <laughs> get your. I packed things up and I ended up going on uh, this tour to Asia with a client to Japan and Nepal and Thailand, where I got this giant chest tattoo, which I have. And in Japan, I met up with an old friend who had moved back to Japan. And she ended up coming in and playing a major role in my uh, client's transformational process. And then she and I had like a week-long love affair together. And then I went back home. And now she's my wife and we have two children <laughs> together. Oh, oh, wow. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> oh, my gosh. If I had the time, the full story is, is so much more. I wrote a chapter on it in my, in my book. But the erotic rock star came to an end in, in here. It, what was initially so liberating for me, so incredibly liberating for me, in start having diminishing returns. You know, it's like, okay, I fulfilled my every fantasy. Literally, I fulfilled my every fantasy. And then all these things I couldn't have imagined. And I discovered if I wanted to, I could bring a different woman home every day of the week. I did for one week straight. Okay, so now it now begs the question of, is this what I want? What do, what do I actually want? I ended up taking this trip to India for the Maha Maham Kumbh Mela. The, the great, great Kumbh Mela it happens once every 144 years. There were largest human gathering on the planet, over 100 million people came through in 100 million over the course of 60 days. Uh, and I had a major health, a series of health crises. First, I had a upper respiratory infection, which I'm nursing inside of a tent for two weeks, like just feeling like I'm dying. And then finally, I get better from that. I go down to Goa in southern uh, India, and I very quickly get Giardia, an intestinal parasite, and start clearing out that way for the next two weeks. Basically, I spent a month in, in India, sick the entire time. I come back home, quickly get uh, Maria, the highly toxic relationship, um, get her pregnant, uh, which was kind of intentional because um, we talked about it <laughs> you know, before I went to India. And then she gets an abortion that I, that I wanted the child. And it had a pretty devastating impact on me. My mom got diagnosed with cancer a few months after that. And she wasn't, uh, Maria was not there for me at all. And that finally, after all the shit, that was my breaking point of, you're not there when mom's diagnosed with cancer, I'm done. And we break up and I get hit with another health crisis. I, my, I don't know what you want to call it, adrenal exhaustion, like stage three adrenal fatigue, uh, near organ fa failure. I was bedridden for a month, um, literally not out of bed for a month except to go to the bathroom. Um, people would bring me food. I couldn't hold a conversation for five minutes. And I hit a point where I, this is where I considered the erotic rock star died. It's like he, he was a lot of energy and I had none. And I had another major ego death in that this erotic rock star who hypersexual lifestyle suddenly had zero libido my body was in survival mode i couldn't even think about sex and then uh about six months later my mom died so all of that happened in a year and a half you know like like any one of those is pretty friggin' major and there were five separate massive events that just broke i think that i really feel like from a spiritual perspective that they were just like I didn't want to let go of the erotic rock star. 
it was pretty damn good. And yeah. It, it took all of that to just break me down enough to let it go. And I let it go. And from his ashes, ultimately, what my... I was first like, now what? What do I do? Like, I don't want the best of my life to be behind me, but how do I top the erotic rock star? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty good avatar. (laughs) Yeah. And I started to come up with this notion that I came to refer to as the evolved masculine, which really took the best of everything I learned as the erotic rock star with things that I could only really see in hindsight. And then I became a husband and a father and started weaving those elements in to my notion of the evolved masculine as well. And whereas the erotic rockstar was very much my laboratory for me to discover what was possible, the evolved masculine was now like, was about service. It, was, it wasn't about like, oh, look at this amazing life I can create for myself. It, it was, how do I help other men who are having so many of the same struggles, especially now more than ever before, more men are struggling with their notion of their masculinity and what it means to be a man and how to be with their sexuality and what yeah, is it men that are women so are confused. actually wanting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I feel like I just got like a 10 to 20 year head start. <laughs> well you've lived like 400 lives in one life for sure yeah oh my goodness yeah okay so with with this life that you've told us so far and i know you wanted to tell us about the story regarding your wife and maybe in the next episode we can unpack that some more while we're you know just asking questions and things like that you know i certainly have so many things i want to ask you about you know i want to you know ask you more about i i think the sexological body work. A lot of people probably don't even know what that is. And we can unpack that a little bit. And just the shift, the the blending and the shifting of sexuality and spirituality over the course of your life, unpacking that and um, how you found the proper course in your life that really makes you feel the most centered. You know, I, I think there's a lot to unpack in the next episode. And I'm really excited to do that. Yeah, I am as well. And I really appreciate hearing about these struggles from a male perspective. You know, as a woman, I don't get to hear that that often. So I really do appreciate that. And I know we're going to have a lot more to talk about on that front too in our next episode. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many, I've only heard it from a few men, a few men that literally actively try and and make the world better when it comes to like the sexual abuse of of women, but all genders, you know, it's, it's very rare that I hear a man, man talk that way and, and take active st- steps. So, you know, thank you for all your work. So just in, in closing, this has obviously been a really powerful episode, a, a very, a unique story. And we're going to explore everything a lot more deeper in the second episode with Destin, asking him questions, unpacking his story. And so I hope you all Join us as we continue to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.